G'day and welcome to today's stories from our past. I'm your host Greg and my co-host is Peter. Hey Greg. Hi Peter. This podcast explores Australian social history using events in our own family as a starting point and telling a story that perhaps resonates with you. So Peter, what's today's story all about? Well Greg, you know when you walk into my house the first thing you see is a hall stand looking straight at you? Yep, I certainly do. That was given to me by my grandmother, I don't know, 30-something years ago. And I knew nothing of its history, and, you know, my grandma could have won a little chook raffle for all I knew. Yep. But um, I'd always noticed that there was a tiny little plaque on the the front of it. It's only about, you know, 20 mils by 30 mils sort of thing. I've noticed that. Yep. And it says, donated to uh, the Reverend C.H. Patmore and Mrs. Patmore, 1934, from the parishioners at Tatura. So that didn't mean all that much to me until I started putting my family history together. And I found that my great-grandmother was a Southby. She had a sister, Helen Marie Southby, and Helen Marie married somebody called Patmore. Oh. Right. So there is a family link to this thing. Then I asked my mum, Mum, do you know anything about this, this hall stand thing? And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, Auntie Nellie gave that to Grandma. Oh, who's Auntie Nellie? She's the wife of Charlie. Oh, Helen Marie is Nellie. Yes. Okay, so this, this hall stand has some significance in, in the family context. So today we'll talk about this because it is quite a significant little artefact. Today's story is about Charlie. Right. That's the Reverend C.H. Patmore. Yes, you said Reverend and the parishioners, so I, I guess there's religion involved here. Yeah, and uh, it's a story about him. It's a story about the hall stand, and it's a story about an old beaten-up tin cup that we'll come right. to. It's actually quite a moving story. It's a story about strength of character, about courage under duress, and in a sense, it's also an enduring love story. Right. Sounds yep. interesting. Yeah. Now, nobody in the uh, family, or, or nobody in the world, quite frankly, knows much about this story because Charlie and Nellie don't have any children. It's one of these instances where you've got a family tree, but that branch ends. There's no yes. children. Yep. And when the branch ends, because either they don't marry or they don't have children or somebody dies young, sure. then the, the story ends as well. Yep, and then there's no descendants to want to go back and track and bring out that. Some yeah, and pass on the story, indeed. Yep. Indeed. So that's what we're doing today. So how did you go about finding all about Charlie? Well, as I say, I put the family tree together and saw that uh, Nellie lived with Char- uh, was married to Charlie Patmore. Yep. So where does Nellie fit in? Well, Mum tells me that Nellie uh, lived with her and her mother, that's my grandma, during the Second World War and afterwards. Well, where was Charlie, I say? Oh, Mum says he died in the war. Oh, well, that intrigued me. I've got to find out what's happened to Charlie. Yeah. Well, that does sound interesting. Um, it gets a bit confusing when when Nellie's not really Nellie by, yes. by birth, mate. Yes, there's a lot of that in family tree research. Okay, well, how about we start off and you tell me what you know about Charlie in his early days. Okay, what I do know is that Charlie was born in England in 1893. His father was also Charles Henry Patmore and they lived in Waltham Abbey, which is a sort of northern suburb of London nowadays. Charlie's dad worked at the Enfield Lock 
Royal Small Arms Factory all of his life. Right. And the family had lived there, you know, for day dot. Nobody had moved on. In 1911, I can find that uh, Charlie's listed as a domestic gardener. But for reasons not very clear at all, in May 1914, aged just 20, he departs for Australia. He's the first member of the family, in fact, the only member of the family to head off to the uh, colonies, let's say. Right. He uh, comes on a boat and the the boat includes uh, 200 lads from Great Britain. The Department of Immigration advertises this in the paper as workers available on farms. So it's like a sponsored migration, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a type of sponsored migration thing. And Charlie uh, ends up working as a labourer in Marong, which is just west of Bindigo. Now, just a bit of timing here. He arrives on the 14th of June, 1914. On the 4th of August, 1914, which is only six weeks later, war is declared in Europe. So um, he got out of England um, just at the right time, let's say. Yes, yeah. Okay. Turns up here he's working as a labourer and they've been sought after. So what happens next? Does he get caught up in the military service or...? Well, interestingly, he's he's the right age to um, serve in the first war, but he doesn't enlist. What what happens is Charlie's career takes quite a sudden change. While researching local papers, I found out that in um, September 1917, at the ripe old age of just 23, he's appointed as a reader at St Jude's uh, Church of England Church in California Gully, which is also a suburb of um, Bendigo nowadays. Right. And here he is delivering eulogies and doing other sort of clerical work, which is uh, quite different to being a farm labourer. Yes, definitely. It's uh, interesting that he uh, hasn't been called up or military service, but then again, some jobs were considered to be reserved occupations and farm labourers often were one of the people Well, it could have been. Um, I have no knowledge at all why he didn't yep. serve in the First War. Yes. All right. But after the war, in 1920, he enrols for um, theological studies at Ridley College in Parkville. Now, Ridley College still exists there in Parkville. It's a very well-renowned um, uh, theological college. I contacted them and they very kindly supplied me a photo um, from 1920 when uh, Charlie was there. It includes about 15 students. Presumably the graduating class. Oh. Charlie's one of them. So, That's great. Yeah. So he gets uh, ordained by the Bishop of Endigo in December 1925. And then uh, November 1926, he marries Nellie. Okay. So he's, uh, he's in his 30s by then, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, 33 by the time he gets married to Nellie. Right. Well, what about Nellie? What's her background in that era? Well, Nellie was born on uh, Boxing Day, 1878, in Echuca. She was the youngest surviving child of five. Her father died when she was just 16, and her brother Harry, in 1900, went off to the Boer War. Right. This left Nellie living at home with her mother, and um, Nellie takes upon the role of, you know, looking after her mother. Basically, basically, housekeeper. Yeah, forever. In 1917, her brother Harry had re-enlisted in the First World War. He dies at Passchendaele. Right. So um, Nellie just seems to have lived a life of home duties, taking care of her mum. Yep. They did live in Bendigo, 
And I'm sort of guessing that um, when Charlie was uh, Minister in Bendigo and she was Church of England, went to the church, maybe they met there. Yeah. Yeah, it's not probably clear. know the family quite well, and particularly um, if they have a son serving in the war who's been lost, the minister would be providing um, mm. some comfort. You some comfort to the, to the family, indeed. One of the interesting things is that um, Nellie is 15 years older than Charlie. Yeah. She's um, 47 when they get married, which which, you know, seems a bit odd. I asked my mum about it. She said, oh, yeah, everybody knew they were, you know, Nellie was quite a bit older. But as far as they were concerned, they were in love and that was it. That's right. Yeah. I'm postulating here, but I'm guessing that Charlie um, didn't marry earlier because he was waiting until he had a secure job. Yeah. I think in in that era, there was a tendency for people to have to wait until uh, they were considered suitable marriage material um, it wasn't unusual in some occupations, I believe, that you had to get permission from people further up the chain to even get married. Yeah, yeah. In the first place. So, and and maybe the church did require, you know, yes, you could expect permission. that they would probably be pretty careful about that. Yep. You don't want ministers uh, getting married and then not having enough money to live on. Mm. So he gets married, um, and then he gets uh, his first posting as a uh, as a priest. Originally in Newstead, which is a tiny little village just south of Bendigo, but then he's appointed as the parish priest at All Saints Church in Tatura. Where's Tatura? Uh, it's a country town in Victoria. It's northeast of Bendigo. It's in a fruit growing area, as I recall. Okay. And um, Charlie stayed there as a priest all through the Great Depression there. In the middle of this time, in 1931, Charlie and Nellie have a brief visit back to England to visit his family. So therefore, Nellie meets the family. Yeah. And, um, you know, Nellie and Charlie know where the family is living, which is near this small arms factory in London. Yes, yeah. In 1934, the uh, powers of be in the Church of England Church move him from Tatura to Elmore. And it's obviously as a result of that move that the parishioners of Tatura donated yep. or presented to Charlie and Nellie the hall stand that now sits in my house. It's interesting. You'd have to imagine that the Depression was been a very busy time for a minister. Uh, lots of people in, in very straightened circumstances, and, and uh, he obviously made an impact. Oh, clearly he did make quite an impact. The uh, archivist from the Bendigo Diocese um, sent me some material and it's clear that Charlie was very active in getting um, you know, uh, social activities happening yes. in each parish he, parish he was in. He would start a choir, he restarted the scout troop in one place. Um, you know, so he was very active in the community. So yeah, he's really building and he's part of the society and he's a leader in that society. Yes, yes. He he clear, clearly wasn't the sort of cleric who just um, turned up for the communion yes. on Sunday and, and preached the gospel yes. and then went home. He was very much involved. Anyhow, he stays at Elmore until July 1940. Okay, July 1940, um, lots of things happening in Europe at that stage. Um, period of great change. How do you think that's uh, impacted on Charlie? You know, the the war was declared in 1939 when Germany invaded um, uh, Poland. 
but not much was happening in England then until about July 1940, which is the start of the Battle of Britain, when yep. Hitler turned west and started looking yes. at beating up on England. Now, I'm speculating here, but you know Charlie knows that his family lives next door to a small arms factory. He's got to be concerned that, uh, for the safety of his family. Yes. I think he decides that it's time for him to do his duty to contribute. So on the 24th of July, which is just a fortnight after the start of the Battle of Britain, Charlie enlists in the AIF at the uh, age of 47, which is pretty old for a digger. That's right, it's the top end of the age range. Yeah, but he is enlisting as a padre, which you know yep. presumably means he won't see active uh, fighting. The um, Bendigo Parish is quite reluctant to see him go, but they go out of their way to present him with a beautiful set of communion vessels by which he will give to his new congregation the blessed body and blood of our Lord. That's very nice. Yep. We mentioned about uh, in England that we've had the Battle of Britain just started, we've had Dunkirk. At that stage, certainly, the war's looking pretty grim for England yeah, uh, or, or Britain. Indeed, and uh, I would have thought anybody enlisting in the AIF at that stage was certainly looking to Europe as to where, where they right. would serve. I, I gather at the time there was some concern about Japan, but that was a bit of a way before we were going to start fighting. Yeah, that's them. right. The, the, the Japanese threat was uh, not nearly as obvious at the time. No. Okay, so what's Charlie do in the uh, army? What happens there? Well, he gets uh, sent to Trawall, which is just near Seymour, and he gets put in the Second uh, Twenty First Battalion. At this stage, there's lots and lots and lots of guys uh, enlisting, and things are a bit chaotic in the army. You know, their ability to do proper training, their resourcing and stuff is not all that good. Uh, they're there for a little while. And um, as more and more troops come in, the army decides they really want to move these guys up the road to a place called Bonigello, which is near Albury. What they do is the army decides that they will actually march the whole battalion, the 146 miles up the Hume Highway, that's uh, 235 kilometres. Sounds like a canny way to get the chaps fit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does get them fit, but it, but it's clearly reported that it's the way that the battalion gels for the first time. Yes. Because they all have to get together and march and be organised. And each little town they go through on the way, you know, Wangaratta and Benalla and places like this, all the people come out and, you know, cheer and wave them on. So yeah. that part of it was good for morale. You could see, you'd understand that, you know, building up that spirit. Yeah. Now, Charlie, he does something fairly interesting here. The first thing he does is, even though he's considerably older than all the others, he marches the whole distance with them. Now, he was an amateur boxer and he was a long-distance runner, so he was very fit. That bit didn't worry him so much. Yeah. But the other thing he did, which is a reflection of his uh, desire to help his his parishioners, let's say, yeah. because he's now got quite a few is that every hour the troops would stop and have a, have a rest, you know, sit down under a tree. Charlie wouldn't sit down. The first thing he'd do is pull out this endless supply of PK chewing gum, which apparently he had, <laughs> and he'd go from one group to another handing out chewing gum yep. and introducing himself. So clearly this was his uh, shtick. This is how he yeah. made sure that he made contact with all the guys in his battalion. He's certainly establishing leadership credentials, isn't he? Yeah. And not in a uh, religious way. It's just that I'm a... I'm there for you. I'm here for you, yeah. Yeah. 
Anyhow, as a result of that, for the rest of his life, he's known as Chewing Gum Charlie. Yeah, that's nice. All right, so they eventually get up to Bonigella near Albury, and they sort of start proper, you know, training and what have you. But they stay there for a long, long time, and the longer they stay, the worse the morale gets, because these guys, they enlisted to go over and beat up on Hitler and do their duty. That's they, right. They didn't enlist to sit around in Albury not doing much. Yeah. Anyhow, they, they're in Albury there for nine months, and all of a sudden the uh, word comes, time to go. Hop on a train, go heading towards Adelaide. And they think, oh, good, we're going to hop on boats in Adelaide and go to Europe. But once they get in Adelaide, they put on another train. This train takes them north up to Darwin. Eventually, it's a bit of a long and arduous sort of trip. Yes, yes. Because in those days, the roads and everything else weren't what they are now. Definitely. They get to Darwin and they're told to set up their own camp at Winelli. Now, Winelli is sort of part uh, outer suburb of Darwin nowadays, but at that time it was nine miles out of town in, in the bush. So they had to, you know, cut the trees down and build their own huts and things like that. I was thinking there wouldn't have been much infrastructure there. No. And morale got even worse at this stage because they stayed at Winelli for another nine months. So they've been in the army for 18 months and not done any, anything by now. Yes. Anyhow, um, at this stage, there's a record I found of one soldier's uh, comment about Charlie. And I'll just read this out. The Padre does not believe in preaching to men. He lives with them, and his sermon is his behaviour. His room is open to all, and it could be written above the doorway. Abandon rank, all ye that enter here. He's continually on the lookout to contact his flock, and one of them, when one remembers that he has a Sunday congregation of more than a thousand, his task is not an easy one. I should point out that at this stage, sixty percent of diggers were Church of England, so you know, right. predominantly the um, the battalion was C of E. Yeah, that's right. That's a big job, isn't it? Yeah. Looking after that many people, and he certainly seemed to be taking it very seriously. Oh yeah! Look, everything about him says he he takes his role mm. as the you know shepherd of the flock. Yeah, very seriously. Good analogy. Anyhow, so at this stage, Nelly, who had previously been living in Bendigo, decides to move up to Toowoomba, where my grandmother and mother were living, ostensibly to be closer to Charlie. Although, you know, I don't know that Bendigo or Toowoomba is either of them are particularly close to uh, no. Darwin. That's right, but at least she's with family anyway. Yeah, but as I said before, this this is an ongoing love story, and um, there's a photo of Charlie Patmore that that is in the Australian War Memorial. Uh, taken at the time they were in Darwin in, at Winelli. And he, sets, he set up a small library for books to you know, give out yes. to, the, to the troops and stuff. And this photo has Charlie sitting at night with one of those old um, kerosene lamps oh, beside yes. him, you yes. know, casting a bit of light across the table. He's writing something. He might well have been writing a sermon, for all I know. But tucked right in front of him is this lovely photo of Nelly. Oh, that's nice. Yep. It kept him uh, sustained, I guess. Yeah, he was. Uh, she was never far from his thoughts, I think. Yeah. So we're in Darwin now, uh, 1941. We must be getting pretty close to some fighting. Well, you know, they, they were there for a long time, but then all of a sudden one event happened that really changed the future of these guys. It was that day that will live in infamy. 
7th of December, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour. Right. Just one week later, the uh, troops up there are now in a group called Gull Force, and Gull Force hops on a series of boats and heads off to an island called Ambon. And about 1,100 troops went to Ambon in a couple of ships. They were there by the end of December 1941. Right. And in the context of things, how far away is Ambon? And... Well, Am- Ambon's one of the 900 or so populated islands in Indonesia. It's part of what was called the old Spice Islands. It's nowhere near Jakarta. It's uh, 2,000 kilometres east of Jakarta. And in fact, it's just off the uh, western end of Papua New Guinea. Right. But it is directly north of Darwin. It's about uh, 500 miles north of Darwin, which means that strategically, if the Japanese uh, get hold of Darwin, they could use that as a base to strike... Uh, sorry, get hold of Dar- uh, Ambon. Ambon, yeah. They can use that as a base to attack Darwin from. Yes. Now, Ambon... Uh, the shape of the island, it, it had a natural harbour there and it had an airstrip. So the Dutch, who were the colonists at the time, had a small army battalion there already. They had about a 1,000 troops. So the theory was, you know, we need to pre- um, hold this island to protect Darwin from the oncoming Japanese. Right. Okay. Do we know much about the, the, the overall plan of, of what's happening at this stage or do they know anything? Oh, I don't, I don't, it's pretty clear the troops don't know all that much. Okay. They, they do know that, that, you know, the Japanese have been um, surging down south, yes. having left China and they're, they're heading through um, Malaysia and what have you. But the Gulf Force guys get to Ambon before the fall of Singapore. So, um, you know, it's sort of early days in the war. Very early. Okay. So they're on Ambon now, ready to defend uh, Australia at a distance, as it were. As it were, yeah. What happens there? Well, they're there for just a few weeks and all of a sudden in February 1942, remembering that they were only got there in December 41, something like 20,000 Japanese troops arrive. And we said before there's about 1,000, 1,100 of them. Yep, 1,000 diggers and about the same number of Dutch troops. The, uh, the Japanese also brought two large aircraft carriers, the uh, Soroya and I forget the name of the other one, but these were the ones that were used at Pearl Harbour. So they had a complete a air support. Air support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had a navy. So, you know, there was no realistic expectation at all that those no. few diggers could defend Ambon. Did we have any uh, air force there at all? Uh, a few old planes that, that, in fact, they cleared out when the... Um, Real fighting started. Yes. So the Japanese invade. The diggers who were there put up a good fight as best they could, but it was only for four days of fighting. There were 54 uh, diggers killed in that activity. Right. When the Japanese arrived, the Australian troops were split into two groups. The main body was near the main town in Ambon, but about 230 of them were around the airstrip, which is um, some distance away. Right. Uh, when the Japanese invaded, uh, nobody knew what happened to those troops. The rest, though, were uh, taken prisoner of war and put into a prison camp near near the main town. The prison camp was known as Tantanoi. Yep. And all of this happened uh, a few days before the fall of Singapore. Right. 
So it's a busy time in the world and Ambon would have been just a fly speck on that compared to what's happening at Singapore. Indeed, indeed. The main focus of everybody was what was happening at Singapore. But the Japanese had clearly decided to sort of rush through and take as much of uh, Indonesia as they could at the time. Yes. We had a token force there and they fell pretty quickly. To a certain extent, uh, you've encircled Singapore already, made it much harder for us to send up any extra help Mm. Um, now, when uh, we go to war, I think Padres are normally uh, with the first aid people helping provide support and, uh, to the people who've been wounded. I guess uh, then that Charlie would have been actually right in the middle of it. He might think he's fighting, but he's going to be right in the middle of it. Yeah. The stories of what happens from now on are a bit fragmented because they, they come from diaries of those troops that survived the war. But what is known is that Charlie was at an advanced casualty clearing station during this fighting, and he was captured pretty much immediately with, with some wounded troops and what have you. Yes. But during his capture in this, you know, the chaotic fog of war, he loses this communion kit that was given to him by the uh, Bendigo Church. So, um, you know, he, for a, a priest, this is, this is not a good start. Lost the goods of his trade. Indeed. But, um, you know, they're rounded up, they're put in this prison camp and, and immediately Charlie recognises the need for um, spiritual support for, for his troops. So he conducts a church service on the first Sunday after they were captured and he continues doing this throughout his time in there. This first Sunday is actually the day that Singapore fell. Anyhow, so he, he wants to hold a church service. He doesn't have his communion kit, so what's he do? Apparently he was a bit of a carpenter, so he goes off and makes his own little wooden cross to um, put on whatever form of altar he had. Then they needed a uh, plate for the wafers. They found uh, an army pattern plate, a tin one that you know looked like a they yes. could use for that. But then they needed a chalice and you know something nice for a chalice during the communion services. They did a bit of toing and froing. Um, now this is a Victorian battalion predominantly yes and some bloke there had what was a sweets dish that the uh, conductors on Vic Rails used to use walking up and down handing out lollies to the kids I guess right okay anyhow this Victoria Vic Rails uh, sweet dish becomes the chalice that uh, Charlie uses uh, you know for all the church services that he gives on Nambon yep yep that's brilliant yeah well You've got to make do with the best you have and the circumstances. Yep. yep. So for the first few months there, uh, life as a POW wasn't all that bad because the Japanese were, you know, still keen on advancing and, and uh, making further, further progress. So the, the Japanese guards initially uh, didn't interfere too much. This is in the first couple of months. So Charlie starts to do all he can for his troops. He, he starts a small library. You know, he had one at Winelli and he starts a new one here. He organises concerts, he trains a a choir. Now, early in the piece, he um, recognises that food's going to be an issue issue for them, so he starts a small garden. Now, there's a a lovely story here that comes out of one of the memories of one of the troops. Charlie's tending this this garden. Uh, Now, it must take a while for the tomatoes in his garden to come to the size of full full size but he's been watching them and then 
he goes down one day ready to pick them, finds they're all gone. Hmm. Anyhow, he then goes up to see the commandant. Apparently he saw the commandant fairly frequently to assist him with uh, his English, I understand, but I haven't been able to confirm that. Bible in hand, goes up there, about to start, walks in, and he sees on the table in front of the commandant these six red tomatoes. Charlie immediately knows where they come from, so he just gives the commandant a real tongue lashing. That's the report about how dare he do this, whatever else. He grabs the tomatoes, rolls them up in his shirt, and just hurries out of the office. Now, That's amazing. It's an amazing. Um, in light of what we know about well, Japanese right. commandants of prison camps nowadays, apparently there were no ramifications for this. Um, I think he just, either the Japanese had great respect for him or they were just totally stunned at his attitude. You would imagine there'd be some respect because he's a, a senior citizen, as it were. And a, well, he was a, also an officer, of course. An officer, that's right. And that may have given him slightly more stature. Yes, yeah. Now that's, there's, that's incredible. Yes, it's a, it's a great story. Um, now, there's an even better story here. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, Charlie was conducting these church services. And in the Australian War Memorial site, there is a uh, photo of a church service being conducted at Ambon, after, you know, when they're prisoners. Right. That's amazing. And, yeah, it is amazing. And I thought, well, you know, in all likelihood, the minister out there has to be Charlie, but I you know, couldn't confirm it until uh, I got hold of some information from uh, a friend who found a report in the Sun from Melbourne in 1955. And what the report says is that um, whilst they were on Ambon, there was a soldier who kept his camera now, keeping a camera as a PRW is a very risky business. You know, he, That's right. he could have That's gotten right. in a lot of trouble for that. He has a f- roll of film, and he gives this film to a Captain Edgar Tanner, who was, you know, his boss, and says, yes. you know, can you mind it for me, thanks. Captain Tanner, for I don't know why, but he rolls the, uh, the film inside a ball of wool. So there's this ball okay. of wool about the size of a big softball. Yep. Um, tightly wound with a roll of film in the middle of it. The Japanese saw this for a few times, never particularly looked at it. At the end of the war, Captain Tanner survives the war. The, the, uh, the digger who took the film didn't, unfortunately. Tanner actually becomes uh, Secretary of the Australian Olympic Federation, as it was. One day he's rummaging, rummaging through this old oak chest and he finds this ball of wool again. He thinks, oh, that's a bit odd. So he takes it into the Sun office and they spend 35 minutes unraveling this thing because it's, you know, tight as can be. Yes. And they find inside it this roll of film. Oh, hello. They send it down to the, you know, the photographic group at the Sun and lo and behold, the photos come out. And lo and behold, um, there's this photo of Charles Batmore delivering the sermon. That's extraordinary. Yeah. There's a few other photos on there. There's eight photos in total. But the, the whole concept of smuggling a roll of film out of a... surviving. Um, so much chance involved there. Yeah. And taking, um, you know, 13 years to develop it yeah. is uh, quite good. What about Nellie, though? She's in Australia. She knows the husband's up there in, in mortal danger. Does she know anything about what's going on? Well, initially, nobody in Australia knew too much, but there were a few uh, groups that escaped from Ambon, and um, 
in particular, an escape by uh, Lieutenant Jenkins and his group. Now, this is quite a thrilling story, quite frankly, so we're going to do a second podcast about it. But Jenkins makes his way to Melbourne eventually after um, escaping from Ambon. He notifies High Command that, you know, Gulf Force is now a whole lot of POWs. Um, that goes on Charlie's military record. And by June 1942, which is several months after they were captured, Nelly knows that Charlie's a POW. Right. That'd be some uh, comfort, I guess, that uh, her husband hasn't been killed. Yep, yep. But uh, we now know, of course, that those uh, prisoners had a pretty tough time. Uh, uh, but at that stage, it wouldn't have been known what was going to happen. No, I don't think anybody knew what was happening. I mean, you know, they knew people were uh, prisoners at Changi, etc., but the full truth of the Burma Railway and things like that were yet yep. to be revealed. That's right. Um, so what's happening with Charlie, too? He's still there on Ambon in the prison camp. Um, yeah, well, what happens is as as time passes and the war progresses, um, the Japanese started uh, having boats in the harbour at Ambon. The Allies flew planes over there. They noticed that there were, you know, boats there. So then there were a few bombing raids on the harbour in particular. When the Allied planes flew over, the diggers weren't all that upset because they knew what they were trying to do. Hmm. But then at one stage, um, the Japanese decide, and I'm not sure why, to put a munitions dump right in the middle of the um, POW camp. 200,000 pounds of explosives. Well, one day the Allies fly over, intentionally or otherwise, drop some bombs in the middle of the munitions dump. The first few bombs um, set off a couple of fires and things, and um, there are accounts of Charlie running around trying to help those who were injured and what have you. But then subsequently a second air raid came over and a bomb, the whole 200,000 pounds of explosives go off in one big hit. This causes a catastrophic explosion. A building that Charlie's in collapses with Charlie underneath it. You know, the building starts on fire. The roof of the building was what they called ATAP, which is the woven palm materials. Oh, it's quite, the, the bush quite, hut, basically. Yeah. And one of the troops there can hear this voice going, help, help, help me. And he sees, you know, a, a hand or a foot sticking out from under this and talks to him and realises that it is Padre Patmore. And the digger says, well, hang on, Charlie, I, you know, I, I can't help you by myself. This is pretty heavy timber. I'll go off and get some other diggers. By the time those diggers come back, the whole place is on fire and Charlie's been burnt to death in a friendly fire incident. Right. Yeah, very sad way. Very to, sad, mm. very sad. There were 13 other Australians killed in those bombings and um, there were 27 Dutch women and children also killed. Right. So... Just casualties of war. So Charlie is buried on Ambon. Right. Uh, I find that it's always very interesting and uh, we talk about uh, the past and what it means to our families. I did some uh, research uh, on Ambon and Gulf Horse and I was surprised to learn that two of the soldiers there had my same family name. And one was in the medical team that was at the airfield and uh, his fate, of course, wasn't known until after the end of the war. But the other was an officer, and 
uh, he would have been living and working in the same hut as he died the same day as Charlie. So he's one of the five officers mm. who died on that on that day in the bombing. Yeah, it's uh, sad, but we now have a context and the history of Charlie that tells our family what happened to one of our. Indeed, it does. So the aftermath of the bombing and Charlie's death, apart from losing officers and things like that. The thing that's reported in the number of accounts by POWs that survive is that they lost the um, person who was with them during those last hours. Charlie was the only trained padre on the in yep. the camp. Yep. I mean, a, a guy did step up after Charlie's death to you know um, run ceremonies and stuff. But cool. So the death toll on Ambon amongst the diggers was the highest of any POW camp in, in the war. It was higher than the Burma Railway. So there were a lot of diggers dying and um, they really missed Charlie's um, spiritual yeah, help. Yeah, spiritual I mean, he guidance. was an older guy. Yeah. So he's almost like a father or an uncle to so many of them as well. Yep. That's amazing. You'd have to think that uh, there'd be a lot of folk who'd be would have been really upset when they lost Charlie. Yeah, and they clearly thought a lot of him. I, I, I've gone through every um, archive material I can yep. and found a few quotes about what people thought of uh, Charlie. One uh, digger described him as the most understanding, the most quiet and gentle man I have ever met. And yet underneath he was a dynamo always ready to listen, advise, and offer spiritual help and comfort. Another recollection comes from a Lieutenant Van Houten, who was one of the few officers who survived to the end of the war. Was he a Dutch officer or one of ours? Uh, he was an Australian, but his name was Dutch, which yeah. <laughs> did cause some issues at one stage. We That will come up in our third uh, podcast oh, okay. about Ambon. Lieutenant Van Houten says, his sterling character and his devotion to his task earned him the highest respect and love of his comrades. At his funeral in Ambon, um, by this stage there's an American missionary who's been captured and also part of the POW yep. group. Yep. He quotes John fifteen thirteen, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But here's something that Charlie himself uh, wrote and said. When he left the Bendigo Parish, um, he left some parting words. And these are his own words. No work has greater importance than the work for God. But in doing so, we often meet with difficulties and disappointments. Such has ever been. In the 43rd Psalm, we read, Why art thou so heavy, O my soul? And why art thou so disquieted within me? O put thy trust in God, for I will yet give him thanks which is the help of my countenance and my God. Throughout our lives, there is one thing that keeps us from disaster. That is, our faith in God. Let faith in God go, and everything goes with it. Amidst all the problems and difficulties of the world today, there is this assurance, that God will never leave us or forsake my sincere wish is that the nearness of God will be very real to you all and that you may experience his presence continually. I hope, from time to time, to keep in touch with you by letters and, in doing so, 
I ask for your prayers in my work among the troops as your representative. May God bless you all. This is the sincere prayer of your sincere friend and rector, C. H. Patmore. That's amazing, isn't it? It's um, very poignant. So what happened to Charlie's uh, story after that? Uh, well, his story doesn't quite just end when he dies. What happens is the the POWs, you know, clearly respect this guy. So what they do is that after the bombing, they find the wooden cross and by now the somewhat broken chalice, the you know, the tin cup from Vic Rails, and they hide it away in the prison camp um, until the end of the war. And the items are actually uh, eventually returned on the liberation to Australia and Captain Gabriel in December 1945 presents them to Nelly. That's good. Yeah, that's good. So these uh, these relics of the horrors of Ambon, the uh, the wooden cross and the, the broken up tin cup, I was really intrigued to try and find out what had happened to them. Um, you know, of course. They weren't, they, our family didn't know what happened to them, so Nellie must have done something with them. Well, eventually found out that Nellie donated the wooden cross to the Bendigo Diocese. Yep. I uh, got in contact with the archivist at, at uh, Bendigo, and uh, she got very involved and tracked it down. And the wooden cross today sits in this tiny little uh, church in Kulabindabin. It's a, quite a small church, but the parish gate has a rem- memorial to Charlie, and the wooden cross sits on the altar. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Now, the tin what cup. What about the other side, the tin cup? Yeah, the chalice. This one, I am 99% certain where it is. I'm 99% certain that it is buried six foot down in a site in Toowoomba. Nellie requested that on her death, the tin cup be buried with her. It's in Block 3, Allotment 62 of the Church of England section of the Drayton and Toowoomba Cemetery. That is amazing. Mm. So I think this is... um, a clear indication of the ongoing love between the two of them. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so just summing up, you know, this is a story about Charlie's enormous strength of character, his uh, courage under duress. It's also a story about a forgotten chapter in Australian's military history, the Ambon story, and we're going to follow up with two other podcasts about this. That'll be good. And for all time, the uh, humble hall stand in our house will now take on very much more importance. Decidedly so. It's, uh, you're now the custodian of an important piece of our Australian history. Indeed we are. Anyhow, our next podcast will tell the remarkable story of Lieutenant Jenkins and his Chinese-Australian Batman, Alex Chu, and their escape from Ambon with a number of others. It's a ripping yarn. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. We would like your views on this topic. Do you have a similar story in your family? If so, perhaps contact us on our email or comment on our Facebook page. The contact details are on our webpage, which is www.todaysstories.com.au. Full details of the story are available on our website. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast. And thank you for listening.